Well, good morning again. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And let me read for us, starting in verse 1 down to verse 20. I um, have mentioned this before, but there are times when, uh, actually, we were just at this conference in Florida, and one of the pastors said, you know, as a preacher, you wake up uh, every Monday morning, and you're pregnant again, and you have to deliver the baby on Sunday. You know, every week, you have a sermon to deliver. And, uh, and you know, I've said before, you know, as I study and you know, sometimes I realize on Saturday night that it's twins and uh, we have more than one sermon. <laughs> and so I think that's going to be the case this morning. So even though it says verses uh, 7 to 20, uh, I think we'll probably get to verse 14 because uh, I'm merciful uh, and graceless. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't want to. Yes, and wise. Thank you. <laughs> yes, so wise. Uh, no. I asked my wife and she told me what to do. So she said, yeah, yeah you should split it in half. <laughs> Don't do that to us. Okay. <laughs> so that's the plan. But I want to read for us verses 1 to 20 uh, to get the context. Remember, this is John the Baptist preaching ministry. And uh, it's just such an incredible text. I've been so captivated by it. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 6. And let's read the entirety of this section to get it in our minds. Starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every high, every ma uh, mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content 
with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the living God. George Whitfield had been preaching with great success across England and America during the Great Awakening. He had a preaching tour in America in 1739 to 1740. Uh, Thomas Kidd uh, describes Whitfield in his biography as America's first celebrity. America's first celebrity. This is the time before the internet and uh, social media, but it was estimated by some that around 80% of people in America had heard Whitfield preach at least one time. His name was just as recognizable uh, uh, to early Americans as royalty. Uh, in, in fact, you know, some thought that he, more people saw Whitfield than they did uh, the king or uh, the president. And, and so, uh, well, this is early, early Americas. And, and so this is uncommon for uh, someone to have such fame and popularity. His farewell sermon in uh, America in, in Boston Commons drew around 23,000 people to hear him preach. That was more than the population of Boston at the time, as people came uh, from other towns and places to hear him. Some estimates have him preaching around 18,000 times in his lifetime to over 10 million people. This is before YouTube. I mean, this is like viral video, you know, but doing it uh, and just going around England and America. There's an interesting story about a man named Nathan Cole, who was a farmer and carpenter in Connecticut during this tour of Whitfield in America. Uh, and in, uh, Cole describes hearing the news of Whitfield's approach to his town and the, the news uh, coming and him dropping everything to hear Whitfield preach. Here, here's what he says in this account. I think you can find this in Arnold Dalimore's uh, biography of Whitfield. He says, Now it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land, and my hearing of his preaching at Philadelphia, like one of the old apostles, and many thousands flocking to hear him preach the gospel, and great numbers were converted to Christ. I felt the Spirit of God drawing me by conviction, longed to, to see and hear him, and wished he would come this way. And I soon heard he was come to New York and the Jerseys and great multitudes flocking after him under great concern for their souls and many converted, which brought on my concern more and more, hoping soon to see him. But next I heard he was at Long Island, then at Boston and next at Northampton. Then one morning, all of a sudden, about eight or nine o'clock, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford and Weatherfield yesterday and is to preach at Middleton this morning. 
at 10 o'clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home and run through my house and bade my wife get ready and quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middleton and ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late to hear him. I brought my horse home and soon mounted and took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. He goes on and describes a little bit more. And then he says, and when my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me, except I bade her. And, and so I would run until I was much out of breath and then mount my horse again. And so I did several times to favor my horse. We improved every moment to get along as if we were fleeing for our lives, all the while fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon for we had 12 miles to ride. I just want to pause here and say, is that your, your experience this morning, you know, to come here? I don't want to miss this. Okay, okay. All right, going back to it. <laughs> uh, and when we came within about half a mile of the road that comes down from Hartford on uh, Weathersfield and Stepney to Middleton, on high land, I saw before me a cloud of, of fog rising. I first thought it came from the great river. But as I came nearer the road, I heard a noise, something like, a low rumbling thunder and presently found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the horses' feet. I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. And as I drew near, it seemed like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely a horse more than his length behind another, all of a lather and foam with sweat, their breath rolling out of their nostrils in the cloud of dust, every jump, every horse, seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble to see the sight, how the world was in a struggle. We went down to the stream. I heard no man speak a word all the way three miles, but everyone pressing forward in great haste. And when we got to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or 4,000 of people assembled together. We got off from our horses and shook off the dust. And the ministers were then coming to the meeting house. I turned and looked towards the great river and saw the ferry boats running swift forward and for, uh, uh, swift forward and forward, bringing over loads of people. The oars rowed nimble and quick. Everything, uh, men, horses, and boats seemed to be struggling for life. The land and banks over the river looked black with people and horses all along the 12 miles. I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. When I saw Mr. Whitfield come up the scaffold, he looked almost angelical, a young, slim, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. And my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along it solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God and a sweet, solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Wow. My kids have a, a board book uh, that's called The Man Who Preached Outside. That's about George Whitfield. It's about five pages long and it's a kid's book about George Whitfield. Well, we come to another man who was known for preaching outside, a man of great fame, at this time, John the Baptist, 
people running, going out to see him out in the wilderness, leaving all behind to go and hear this man preach the good news, to preach the gospel. Matthew chapter three, verse five says this, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. The fervor to hear John preach, similar to the fervor of those in America going to hear George Whitfield. It sounds like such a foreign time to us uh, that that would take place. What was it about his preaching that attracted the crowds? Well, verse 18 summarizes his preaching ministry as preaching good news, heralding the good news. And we've been looking, starting last week, at preaching that is successful. And preaching that is successful is preaching that points people to Christ. John was like a finger, a finger that pointed to the one who was to come. John the Baptist does just about everything opposite of conventional wisdom. He does not dress to impress. He does not preach in a strategic place. He does not preach to felt needs. His message is offensive, and yet he is the greatest. And he points people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we began to look at these marks of preaching that point people to Jesus, the kind of preaching that points people to Jesus. And let me remind you, the first two we saw last time, uh, we looked at the context of preaching in verses one to two as Luke gives us this historical context and looking at these five political rulers who were wicked and two religious rulers who were wicked. And we pointed out that the word of God preaching comes at all times in all places, always relevant, no matter the context, politically, religiously, the word of God is relevant and comes and speaks into that situation. We don't need to make the word of God relevant. It is relevant. We also heard the call of preaching, which is repentance, uh, the turning from, God, from, from sin to God. And that comes from the content of preaching, which is the scriptures, as the word of God came to John. And he quotes from Isaiah the prophet, this, this fulfillment of John's ministry as one who came to herald to be a voice in the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the Messiah and to point people to him. Now we move on in verses seven to nine to see the confrontation of preaching, the confrontation of preaching. And see this in verses seven to nine. Let me read this verse seven again. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Really, we see four features of his confrontation in preaching in verses seven to nine. First, he exposes the hypocrite. John exposes the hypocrite in what we just read in verse seven. Now, in Matthew's account of this, uh, it highlights that it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, were the the ones whom he was saying this to. Uh, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Luke just says it more generically, that he was saying this uh, to the crowds. And of course, there was potentially more than just the Pharisees and Sadducees who had a hypocrisy about them. But Matthew focuses in particular upon them being a Jewish gospel and and calling them out. But either way, uh, Luke is addressing the danger of hypocrisy in religion. 
a failure to assess one's own condition before God. And so that's what he does. He addresses their true condition. He exposes their condition. And he, in doing so, he exposes the hypocrite. In essence, his message is, don't be like this. Don't be a hypocrite like these men. He called them a brood of vipers. That's their condition. You guys are like an, the offspring of snakes. Now, why that imagery? I mean, of course, not a lot of people like snakes, but this goes back to Genesis 3.15, right? You have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is like saying you are sons of the devil. And that's what Jesus said in Luke, or sorry, John chapter 8, verses 43 and 44. There Jesus is speaking to some of these, maybe likely some of these same people. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So John calls them in line with this way of thinking, uh, you guys are vipers. You are depraved, wicked, sons of the devil. John is not very seeker sensitive, to use a modern term. I don't think John did a survey of the Jordan region to see like, what kind of topics do you guys want to hear about? You know, what kind of church do you want to go to? (laughs) Uh, No, he didn't do any of that. He exposes their true condition. In fact, he doesn't preach to felt needs. He says, here is your need. This is your need. This is your condition. The condition you don't want to realize about yourself. And after exposing their true condition, he then asked them a question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This wrath likely referring to this day of the Lord judgment, which would have been an expectation of Jews from the Old Testament, of God's coming wrath upon the world as he brings judgment upon all the nations. And yet one of those nations is going to be Israel if they're unrepentant. And so he's warning of this coming judgment. And this imagery is great because it's like when a brush fire comes and these snakes slither out and they expose themselves uh, to escape the fire. Of course, there was this great fervor about John's ministry. And so a lot of interest, you know, you have to wonder why were these guys going out in the first place? And, you know, if if there is such a uh, impressiveness to John's ministry, and a drawing of people to him, to hear him, it would be strange if these men didn't go out. In fact, later, uh, Jesus asked them the nature of John's baptism, and they won't answer the question, the authority of his baptism, because if they answer one way, uh, they're in trouble. If they answer another way, they're in trouble also. And, you know, was it from heaven or from man? And so they, they have to agree enough with the people so that they stay on the people's side. But they're going out because everyone is going out, and John calls them out on this. Who, who warned you guys to flee from the wrath to come? Alan Thompson writes this in his commentary about this question. He says, the question is addressed to those who think that escape from judgment will come from mere baptism without repentance. And so just as a footnote, this is a, a good a point to make among others for those who would believe in what they might call baptismal regeneration, that physically being baptized is what is necessary for being saved. Because clearly John here is saying, uh, you guys are coming out to be baptized, but I'm not going to baptize you. Who, who warned you? You need to bear fruits keeping with repentance first. 
is the idea. You need to evidence that you truly have repented inside before you go through this rite, that it's to symbolize that very thing. And so John exposes these people for who they are. This is what good preaching does. It exposes the sinner before God. I once heard someone say uh, that preaching a sermon, in preaching a sermon, three things should uh, be aimed at. The humbling of the sinner, the exaltation of the Savior, and the edification of the saints. You know, bring us low, exalt Christ, and edify us in the scriptures. And so good preaching will expose the sinner, but then clothe them with the righteousness of Christ. It shows the sinner his or her true condition before a holy God. And this is good news. This is the beginning of the good news. So that we see it as good news. Of course, we think of Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, cutting, dividing, revealing the motives of the heart, exposing the sinner and their condition. Paul did a very similar thing to John in Romans uh, 1 verse 18, where he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here is God's wrath coming, and it's to those who are in this condition, this perilous condition. J.C. Ryle says this, The spiritual disease of those before him was desperate and of long standing, and he knew that desperate diseases need strong remedies. And so John exposes the sinner. He exposes the hypocrite. This is confrontational preaching. Notice, secondly, he defines true repentance or he describes true repentance. He says in verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What John is stressing here is the need for evidence of one's repentance. Produce evidence that your repentance is real. You guys say you have repented, but it doesn't seem like that from the external. It doesn't seem apparent. Real repentance always leads to a changed life. Acts chapter 26, verses 19 and 20, we hear about Paul before Agrippa. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, bearing fruit as an evidence of their repentance. Of course, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 actually talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Right? So the Spirit works in you, regeneration, causing faith and repentance as a gift. And what are the fruits that the Holy Spirit produces by bringing new life and indwelling within you? Well, he lists those fruits. And that's the same idea, bear fruits. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Is what John is saying to these who are coming out. I've heard this one illustration that was helpful about why a dog barks. Why does a dog bark? A dog doesn't bark to say, I want to be a dog, so I'm going to bark, right? No, a dog barks because it's its nature to bark. That's what dogs do. We don't bear fruit in order to become a Christian, 
He's not telling them, start doing good works so that you can become a Christian. No, he's saying, start showing the reality of a true changed heart, if that be the case in your life. We bear fruit because we have a new nature as a Christian. That We cannot help but be different. And so John here is calling out a false repentance. A false repentance is one in which there is no change that follows, no fruit on the tree. And a fruitless repentance is a useless repentance. It may appear on the surface to some from a distance to be repentance, but it is not the real thing. It's like a print of a famous painting. Maybe you go to a museum and you see just an amazing painting. You've seen it online, but you go and you see, and it's the detail of it in the actual uh, painting, some master. And, and you see, wow, this is, you're so impacted by it that you go and you say, well, I don't have $10 million to spend on this painting, so I'll buy a $5 print. It's like a poster. But I'll put a nice uh, frame around it and put it on my wall. And, and so someone comes in and maybe from a distance, they go, what? You've got a Rembrandt? And then you get up close and it's, you know, shiny because it's like a, a poster. <laughs> and it's, it's worthless, right? It's maybe a mile from a distance, but upon closer examination, it's not the real thing. And John is saying, is your repentance merely an imitation repentance, a mere print? Or is it the real thing wrought by God in your heart? So you could dress it up, call it the real thing, but real repentance bears fruit. Now, mind you, John is not telling them to go out and do a lot of good works to earn repentance. That's not what he's saying. That would be like, uh, some have said, going to the grocery store and buying a bunch of produce and going to your tree that is dead in your yard and stapling all this fruit upon it and then inviting someone over and going, man, look at how productive this tree is. No, that is not what you do because the tree is dead. The roots are dead. And you can't just put a fake, you know, real fruit, staple that on and say, look at all this fruit externally. No, because the root is, is dead. And some people do that, assuring themselves that they have a repentance that is real when in fact it is anything but. If you are a dead tree, you will not have any fruit. That's the point he's making. Fruit comes from a living tree. If you've been made alive by the Spirit, the result is fruit. Yes, this fruit comes in different sizes, and uh, it comes uh, to different degrees in people's lives, but it comes. It comes. There is a change. You cannot have the Spirit of God coming to indwell your heart, regenerating your heart, and there be no difference whatsoever from an unbeliever. What John is doing in his preaching is defining the nature of true repentance. Just like we often say true faith works, we might say true repentance works. It has fruit. It has evidence. We're not saying we, we work and that is uh, how we're saved. No, we're saying this is the result of that. Root and fruit. If God changes the root, causes life, there will be fruit. And so he defines repentance. He exposes the hypocrite, their condition. He defines true repentance. He also is confrontational in another way in that he removes excuses. He removes excuses. Look in the middle of verse eight. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Notice how John anticipates what they are thinking before they say it. And he cuts them off at the pass. He just cuts their legs out from under them. And good preaching is like this. Good preaching anticipates the objections that people are going to make to the truth and then addresses those beforehand. Maybe you're thinking this. Here's what the word of God says. Like Paul does this. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. He knows they're thinking that. Is there injustice with God? May it never be. And he's just anticipating these objections and then removing them from the table. Why? Ultimately, in order to expose the sinner that they have, their only hope is the gospel and Christ. And so if you're still clinging to some false hope, then you're not ready to receive the gospel because you're still clinging to your own works, your own righteousness, whatever it may be. And so the good preacher comes along and knocks all of those supports out so that you have no hope apart from Christ. And that's what John does. He knows they're relying upon their ancestry. And so he addresses that. Paul would address this as well. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't be deceived. Verse 9 of chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he says this, do not be deceived. Why would he say that? Because people are deceived often about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived about this. Don't, here's the danger of calling something, saying that something is not a sin when it is a sin. You've just cut someone off from salvation. If you tell someone that a sin that they need to repent of is not even a sin, you don't even have to worry about that then you can't respond to the gospel. You have to get sin right. You have to rightly define it, define the issue. And so he says, don't be deceived. Let me take this excuse off the table for you. And then he, it, they're prepared. And he says in verse 11, such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is why the, the umbrella over John's preaching is good news because he refuses to lie to people about their sin. And he exposes them and removes excuses that they are still holding up like a spider web before a rock to shield them from the reality of their condition. So don't be deceived. Jesus is the same. They claim later Abraham is their father. Jesus removes that hope for them by telling them that their father is the devil. No, you don't know Abraham in the, you know, safe. Sharing his faith, you just are related to him. Your real father is the devil. And they're believing their family heritage brought them acceptance with God. Many thought that being related to Abraham simply by blood meant that they had special privileges that would spare them from judgment. You know, as if Abraham's waiting at the gates and, oh, wait, you know, you're a Jew. Oh, you, can't, you can't go to hell. Let me pull you off. You know, here, you're over here. It's a special line over here for you guys. You know, later in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, this story that Jesus tells, the rich man in hell pleads with Abraham. He says, Father Abraham. He pleads the ancestry, his connection to Abraham for relief. And yet it's no help, help to him, no, no hope for him. One commentator said this, the best religious pedigree by itself is not an adequate source of protection before him. Each individual must assess himself or herself aright. 
by itself, the richest biological connections is worthless spiritually if the spiritual environment and exhortation are ignored. It doesn't matter who your parents were, who, you know, so you were, married, you, you were related, your, your great-grandfather was a famous preacher. Like, oh, I did, a, I did a Bible study with John MacArthur one time, you know, so I'm okay, you know. No, it's, that's not how it works. He says to them, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. What a shocking statement. These stones. I think what he's point, his point is God can bring life out of that which is lifeless. And it may be a reference to the Gentiles, those who are not descended from Abraham, and yet God can bring life into their hearts as well. In fact, this is really the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. Maybe you remember this imagery. It's used in chapter 11, verse 19, but it's also used in chapter 36, verse 26. And here's what God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. This heart of flesh, this taking this heart of stone to make it a heart of flesh, bringing that which is lifeless, a stone, and making it full of life, flesh. The issue John wants them to realize, and it's not physical relationship to Abraham that saves a person. It is a spiritual relationship in, in that you share the same faith as Abraham. I mean, that whole section of Genesis 12 to 25, which recounts the life of Abraham, there's one major point in that section, and it's the life of faith. It is Abraham's faith that he is accepted before God. He's declared righteous before God. And so Paul will pick up on that in Romans chapter 4 in Romans 9, in Galatians 3, and he'll speak about the need to have a faith like unto Abraham's, to follow him in faith. It's the children of faith that are the heirs, not just the ancestry with him. J.C. Ryle says this, it will save no man to have had Abraham's blood in his veins if he did not possess Abraham's faith and do Abraham's works. People make all kinds of excuses for not dealing with God personally for not repenting of sin and trusting in Christ for themselves. But over time, good preaching will expose those excuses and seek to remove them from the table so that people have to deal with God. They cannot hold on to these excuses any longer. And so that is what our interactions with people ought to seek to do is to understand what are the common things people deceive themselves with and refuse to come to Christ. And we need to address those and bring those up and bring scriptural authority to bear as we talk to our friends and family and, and acquaintances about the gospel and say, here's the truth, brother. You cannot hold to this uh, false hope for salvation and to remove those things from the table. John models that for us as he takes off the table, their excuses. So it's confrontational, it removes excuses. Also, fourthly, he warns of judgment. It's confrontational in that he warns of judgment. Verse nine, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here he speaks about the nearness of judgment. What an image. This image of a tree that's dead and here is this lumberjack who leans up their sharpened ax just right next to that tree. And he's standing next to it. And it's like, all he has to do is pick up that ax 
and drop it on the root. That's how imminent this judgment is. It, you could bring it into modern times and just say, you know, the chainsaw is full of gas and it's been started and you can hear it and it's next to the tree. All he has to do is pick it up, put his finger on the trigger and start to cut. That's this idea of the, how close this judgment is. The ax is laid to the root of the trees. That is the, where the issue is. It's at the root. The root is dead, therefore there is no fruit. And so he's saying he's going to cut it down. He's going to cut this tree down. And notice he says every tree. He's talking about individuals, right? He says you can't say, oh, I have Abraham as my father, as if it's this corporate thing that you know, you're just associated with the right people and you get in. And he's saying each and every tree has to deal with God. And if you're a dead tree, in the end, he will cut you down. And so this is about individuals. And Jesus spoke in a similar way in John 15, verse six, when he talks about abiding in him, he says this in John 15, six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. One p- person called this, uh, this part of the tree, the Judas branch, the Judas branch that, is, that appeared from the, the outside to be associated with Christ, just like the other disciples. And he was right there with them and he was doing these works and he seemed like he was connected to the vine, but he was dead. He was a dead branch. And so Christ cuts him off just like he will do with others who have a superficial association, but not a true vital living connection to Christ. What is John preaching? John is preaching the doctrine of hell that those who do not repent will burn in hell. I mean, sometimes people make fun of the title turn or burn. I titled the message that, but we, we understand that there is a, maybe a, you've experienced some open air preachers and open air preaching is fine. Good. I've done it before. And sometimes you meet some who are a little bit, you know, Hey brother, tell them the good news too, right? Like don't just tell them the bad news. Make sure. And I had a preacher friend, as a side note, doesn't count against my time uh, where he was hearing this guy preach and all he was just doing was railing, railing, railing on people. And, uh, and he just came up and said, hey, preach the good news too. You know, tell him about Jesus. And so the guy was like, yeah. And he started to tell him about the good news. He's like, come on, dude, don't forget. Like, you know, you only get like two minutes of these people's attention. Uh, make sure they hear about Christ too and the way of hope. But you must preach the bad news as well as the good news. John is preaching this sober message to them, telling them the truth. Listen, if you don't repent, he will cut you down in judgment. It's a message often mocked today, but it's the truth. It must be a part of our message. Thomas Watson once said this, what fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? For a drop of pleasure will deceive themselves that it's worth it. And thus in the end, will drink a sea of God's wrath. We too must preach this message. There's no love to hide the truth of hell from sinners. John's message is called good news, even this part. Listen to J.C. Ryle at this point, making a great point about preaching and giving the truth to others. He says, well, would it be for the church of Christ if it possessed more plain speaking ministers like John the Baptist? In these latter days, a morbid dislike to strong language, an excessive fear of giving offense, a constant flinching from directness and plain speaking are unhappily too much the characteristics of the modern Christian pulpit. Mind you, he wrote this quite a long time ago. 
personality and uncharitable language are no doubt always to be depreciated. But there is no charity in flattering unconverted people by abstaining from any mention of their vices or in applying smooth epithets to damnable sins. There are two texts which are too much forgotten by Christian preachers. In one it is written, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. In the other it is written, If I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. This is the confrontation of preaching. This is what John does. He confronts them. He exposes their condition. He defines for them true repentance. He removes excuses from them. And then he warns them of judgment if they don't repent. This is the confrontation of preaching. And this causes some to respond. Some people respond to this positively and they begin to say, what should we do? Tell us, John, tell us more. What should we do? How should we respond? And that begins to lead into this next section of verses 10 to 14. And we'll just call it the council of preaching, the council of preaching, the council that preaching gives. This is application. While John has been confronting the hypocrites, there were nevertheless those who were truly repentant in the crowd. One person called the first group the empty professors and the second group the uh, genuine possessors, right? You have these empty professors, not like in a university, even though they were like the university professors for Israel, but they were the ones who professed to know God, but they didn't truly know him. And then you have these who are genuine possessors. They truly possess saving faith and repentance, and they want to know how that should manifest in their lives. And it is those genuine people likely who are asking John what they must do. Verse 10 says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? This is kind of a common refrain. Maybe not common is too, too strong. Uh, a refrain that comes up a number of times in scripture where Someone says, what shall I do to be saved, right? The Philippian jailer. But then it comes up in Acts 2 when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, this, you know, blow the lights out sermon. It's incredible. And, and they say, what then shall we do? Acts 2, 37. Now, when the, they heard, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And you know what they told him? Repent, repent. Now, John here in John the Baptist, he answers them with tangible and practical counsel to how to apply the words spoken to them in their uh, individual conditions, their contexts. He's still being general in a sense and speaking in categories, uh, speaking to the crowds, speaking to uh, tax collectors, to soldiers, and yet he's seeking to apply the message to them, giving them ideas. And so he's applying, he's doing the work of application exhorting the scriptures to their specific situations. He's connecting the truth with people's lives. Uh, John Stott wrote a book on preaching called Between Two Worlds. And uh, the, the title itself is a great description of what preaching is. It's like the preacher has a foot in the ancient world, the ancient context, what was written and the authorial intent, and then another foot in the modern context, the present context where people live. And the, uh, the point is to take the truth from that ancient context and show its relevance in the lives of people uh, and the significance of the meaning of the text in their present lives to bring that forward. And John begins to do that for them. He's so practical in his answer. And he gives these three representative examples of what true repentance looks like. 
I think it, it encourages us as well. There are times when it's helpful to come alongside someone who is trying to repent in some way and help them to see what that might look like and to help walk through them what repentance would look like for this situation and connecting those dots. Look at verse 11. He answered them, whoever has two tunics, so he's speaking generally the crowds here, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Here's the general fruit of repentance. It's generosity and love for others. Now, speaking of between two worlds, this is where you can see why this matters because uh, I'm pretty sure you have more than one t-shirt, okay? I'm pretty sure you've, you've got a refrigerator, maybe not full of food, you know, eggs are a little expensive, but like you, but, but there's food in there, right? You got more than just one meal's worth. Uh, and, and so we, we look at this and we go, wait, what do you mean? If, if you got two shirts, I've got, I mean, there's YouTube videos on how to declutter your closet. I mean, like, and they got millions of views. So that's not our problem. But the point we get, nevertheless, the principle is the same. The issue he's drawing at is uh, that the difference uh, is, is the love for your neighbor. That, that's the issue. You have something to help them. And so you do. You're, they're in need. You have ability to meet that need. And so you help them. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Galatians 5, verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2, verse 15 says, if, you're, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, that sounds very similar, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 1 John 3, verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? What John is saying is you have the ability to meet the need. You have the knowledge of the need and you do it, right? If God's providence aligns those things, then the evidence is we, we say, oh, I want to help this person. I want to bless them. Jesus said uh, the statement that Paul recounts for us, it's not found elsewhere in Acts 20, 35. It says, in all things I have, this is Paul speaking, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now Luke shows us later in his second volume in Acts chapter 4, how this kind of manifested itself in the uh, early church. In Acts 4, verse 34, it says, there, were, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And the big point here is that if there was a need, like a, gener uh, uh, a genuine need, that the church would say, oh, we need to help this person. We need to help this brother. And so I think there's even a priority given in scripture to that believers show love, especially to other believers. You know, do good to all men, especially to the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. And so there's this concern for one another to say, oh, you know, we don't want there to be anyone who's suffering and doesn't have food or, or clothing. 
And of course, there's a, there's a balance here, right? Paul says, hey, look, if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. Don't feed that guy. Don't give him stuff because he's not working. He should be working. Of course, there's balancing out, but he's, this is a genuine need that's being spoken of. And so those who repent and demonstrate this by their sacrificial love for others, and that can manifest itself in so many ways. But really, what happens is God saves us is that we start thinking less about ourselves and more about others. We become others focused, concerned about them. And so this is some of the fruit that's born that he's continuing to encourage in their lives. This next group or the next two groups that John addresses about their repentance are some of the most unpopular people in Israel, the tax collectors and these soldiers. Verses 12 and 13 give us the next category. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. So the way taxes worked then, tax collectors, if usually they had a lot of money to start, and so they could buy a, kind of like a franchise, they could buy the, the, um, the right to collect the taxes from a group of people. And sometimes they would hire those under them and some under them. But basically you would buy the right to collect. And so Rome would tell you, you need to collect this much money for this year. And so they were like, no problem. Uh, then they would raise the money and say, so, so let's say, you know, we need 10,000 from you this year in taxes. And they might say, okay, I'm going to make it 20,000. And so they tell the people, okay, you owe us this much money so that they can then take that 10,000, give Rome their part, and then they get to keep a little extra. And so they were greatly hated because of these practices that they would do. And so he's telling them, essentially, you need to evidence repentance by acting honestly, having integrity in your work having just business practices. And you probably remember of a particular tax collector who was saved in Luke chapter 19, a little guy, a wee man named Zacchaeus, right? We know him and he was a tax collector and he repented. It says in verse two of chapter 19, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So probably it means that he was like over a bunch of others. He he had hired others under him to collect taxes and they had probably hired others under them to collect taxes. And it all comes back, filters up to Zacchaeus. This guy's making bank. And then God saves him. Verse eight, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, here's his response after God saves him. Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Whoa, he's making restitution. This hurts, this hurts him financially, but he's, he's eager to do it. This is his idea. I, I, I need to restore it. And it's going back to the Mosaic law even. Verse nine, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, it's like, if that's your response to the gospel, salvation has come to your house. I mean, if you're willing to, to do this and to make restitution, it's an evidence God has been at work in your life. What, what radical turning and repentance? I mean, sometimes repentance hurts because the cost for the particular situation that we're dealing with. And look at verse 14. He gives this other category of soldiers. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And just imagine the scene. I mean, we don't know if these all came like rapid fire or these are just representative of different times, but you can imagine like some group calls out, you know, it's like the Q&A part of the sermon, I guess. And Huh, what, what do we do? You know, there's just this fervor to, to be right with the Lord. And the soldiers, you know, some soldiers, they're like, guys are like, hey, you ask him, you know, say, so one of the soldiers asked him, 
What shall we do? He says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Many think these are probably Jewish soldiers and they may have been associated with the tax collectors as the, the muscle to get money out of people. And so he's really saying, you need to abandon your unjust practices of getting money out of people. This word, do not extort, it, it has this idea of like shaking violently or taking money by force. Like we, we say like, oh, he shook them down, right? The shakedown. And uh, that's what they were doing to get money from people or intimidating them. Here's what we're gonna do to you if you don't give us this money. And he's saying, you gotta put an end to that. And really he gives them and they put off, put on paradigm here, which we see later in scripture. He said, put off practices that would use violence or intimidation to extract money from people and instead put on a heart of contentment. A heart that says, I am content with the wages that I have. God has determined what he's gonna give me and I'm content with that. I don't need to have unjust practices to get more. Notice what he doesn't tell them to do. He doesn't say, you need to quit the, the military. You need to get rid of the show. You need to stop being a tax collector. You need to come out in the wilderness with me. He doesn't say to do any of that. John seems to give uh, approval to being a tax collector for Rome and being a soldier. There were apparently believers in Caesar's household, according to the end of Philippians, as Paul's sending greetings of believers to other believers. And he says, those in Caesar's household greet you. What are, Caesar's household it means there's believers who heard the gospel and got saved. And here they are in this interesting uh, predicament, this situation high up in the military or in the, in the government, and God has saved them. And they're trying to walk that line. And yet God has saved them. And so what, how interesting. He says, it's not about you changing your vocation, but you being changed in your vocation. And so he, he legitimizes these roles to have but he's saying, you change. Dale Ralph Davis writes this great comment about repentance. He says, repentance then is not seen in your doing some extraordinary feat, but in your living ordinary life in a transformed way. Living ordinary life in a transformed way. And so another good application is just the need to act honorably and honestly at jobs and in our finances. And so John gives some representative qualities of a repentant person. This is not exhaustive, much more to say, but he says generosity, honesty, integrity, a love, a civility, contentment, as he tries to define repentance for them. Jay Adams is a biblical counselor um, for many years, and he would ask this question to people, when does a thief no longer, when is a thief no longer a thief? And so some people would say, well, when he stops stealing. And Adams would say, no, it's when he starts giving, when he starts giving to other people. And they would say, when does a liar stop being a liar? And they say, well, when he stops telling lies. No, when he starts telling the truth, when he's committed to the truth. Then you know, he's not only just put off his sin, but he has put on righteousness. He has been changed. He loves righteousness now, not only hating sin. And so that's what we see in Ephesians 4. Let the one who steals, steal no longer, but work hard with his hands so that he may have something to give to others. That's repentance. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, verse, uh, verse uh, chap, chapter 15, um, paragraph five. Here's this little phrase helpful for us. It says, we need to repent of particular sins, particularly. Repent of particular sins, particularly. Spurgeon said it like this, your repentance should be as notorious as your sin. 
Your repentance should be as notorious as your sin. It should be evident. You know, sometimes you, you try to help people. This is the challenge, by the way, of just shepherding people is as you're working through repentance, you don't want to just give people hoops to jump through that they can kind of superficially say, all right, tell me the five things I need to do. I'll do those things. And now I'm repentant, right? I don't want to be helpful to show what that would look like potentially in the situation. And John seems to be doing that here. Sometimes you don't even need to tell someone though. And they just seem to, they just know what they need to do and they do it. I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 18, or sorry, Acts chapter 19, this passage uh, always amazes me. This is what true repentance looks like. It is costly at times to repent of our sins. Acts chapter 19, verse 18 they're preaching around. They've just been in Ephesus. And <clears throat> verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came. So they've been saved. And now they're going to evidence their repentance. Many who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What's happening here? Well, they're going, they were involved in some magic practices. They had all these books to do their incantations or whatever. And they're going, okay, we, we reject that. That's wrong. That's false. We want to worship the true God. But they're going, what do we do with all these books? Like we can't sell them because we don't want other people to do this. What do we do? They're like, well, let's burn it. Like let's burn it. But They've spent money on these. They're valuable and they're going to lose. Their bottom line is not going to look good. And some have calculated how much this may have been. They approximate maybe around $5 million worth of books that were burned. That's costly repentance. Yet it was worth it. It was worth it. Let us never bemoan the casting off of our sin. For in releasing our sin and repentance, we can then grasp at such a greater treasure in the person of Christ. What did your sin ever do for you? What did it ever give you that Christ cannot do far better? The man who found the treasure hidden in the field did not bemoan having to sell all he owned in order to buy the field, but rather says that in his joy, he went and sold all that he had to buy the field. The point of repentance is that it shows up in a changed life. It shows up in a changed life. Many more examples could be multiplied in countless ways that John doesn't address. Repentance for fathers, repentance for mothers, repentance for husbands, for wives, for children, for workers, for church members, for citizens, repentance for sins of gossip, of worry, anger, lust, grumbling, complaining, laziness, self-pity, manipulation, gossip and slander. He could have gone on and on and on if they were willing to stay, but he gives some representatives here. Often, talked with other pastors and said, you know, when someone's truly repentant, everyone knows it. It's evident. You're not going, ah, you know, time will show. It'll, it'll definitely prove itself. And the great news of repentance is those who forsake their sins find mercy, find grace in the person of Christ. They find forgiveness. As we release our sin and confession, we find cleansing from the Lord. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He says, it must not content us to cry out against sins to which by natural temperament, we are not inclined. 
In other words, sins we don't struggle with. While we deal gently with other sins of a different character, let us find out our own peculiar corruptions. Let us know our own besetting sins. Against them, let us direct our principal efforts. With these, let us wage unceasing war. Let the rich break off from the rich man's sins and the poor from the sins of the poor. Let the young give up the sins of youth and the old man the sins of age. This is the first step towards proving that we are in earnest. When we first begin to feel about our souls, are we real? Are we sincere? Then let us begin by looking at home and looking within. Preaching that is successful is preaching that points people to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope for salvation. And sometimes, and oftentimes, to get there, you have to remove lots of obstacles and you have to preach the message of repentance so that people count the cost and they find then by the spirit of God's work that Christ is far more worth it than to hold on to sin. May he do that for us continually as we are repenters. And if you haven't repented initially unto life, unto spiritual life, may you do so today. And may we have this message as we go out and graciously seek to win those to the gospel as we preach good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for very convicting message for us as we think about repentance and as you give us soft hearts to hear and respond. Lord, encourage us, even as our hearts are exposed in some ways, in various ways, that we would also be encouraged at the gospel yet again, that as we see the darkness of our sin, we would be blown away by the light of your goodness, glory, and gospel. And that it's true that our sins are forgiven and washed away in Christ. What great hope we have in our rock of ages. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing of this great reality, this great gospel, rock of ages, 209. And there's a, I chose this intentionally because of this line. This is not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? In other words, if I could just pour out the tears, that couldn't atone for my sin. It's not, you know, all your tears and repentance. It's Christ that saves, not your repentance. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Let's sing Rock of Ages 209.